Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am awfully glad that I've got my friends around the studio table, and we are going to uh, start with another couple hours of Guy Talk, which I always look forward to every week. As a matter of fact, last week we were in Madison, Wisconsin, doing Guy Talk Live, and that was a lot of fun. Gentlemen, welcome. Good to be here, Bill. Hi, Thanks, Bill. Tom. Thanks, Jeff. Good to see you. It was one of the best times of my life, personally, being really? with those folks. I yep. enjoyed it. It was completely awesome. We just had a lot of fun, and and uh, it was great to meet some of the listeners down in Madison, and and uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And we do want to have a special thanks to Jeannie today, uh, because you guys, what did you guys enjoy when you got Pizza! Here? Pizza! It oh, was boy. wonderful. Now you guys can always... You can't hold that against me we anymore. Can't, they, can't <laughs> they can't whine about no pizza anymore. Yeah, no, no, we're happy. Yeah, I understand. But we want Jeannie some of that funded, chocolate cake. <laughs> yeah, Jeannie funded the pizza, right? She did fund the pizza. Bless yeah. your heart. Thank, Thank you, you, Jeannie, very much. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great to great to be with all of our friends there. So, uh, guy talk. You send the questions. We do our best to answer them. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Now, Jeff, you were in Israel in September, and you were supposed to be there right now. But it got moved. We were. When we first started planning, our first choice was actually this past week. And our guide that we have used uh, three other times to go to Israel through my church was actually booked up this week. And so we uh, got back from Israel about three weeks ago, not quite three weeks ago now. And uh, so, yeah, we would have been there. The, tr- the group that he was with uh, was actually from California and um, actually was on a Zoom call with them all. They were in a bunker in Tel Aviv uh, on the first day, and fortunately, he was able to get them to the airport that next day, and they did get out uh, on a flight. Uh, so there, that group is uh, now back home, I assume, and uh, and all is safe. I just talked to Aron, who was our guide today. He lives in Israel. He's actually a born again uh, Jew, originally from New Zealand, who now lives in Israel. That's mm-hmm. a lot, right there, isn't it? It is. Born again Jewish believer from. New Zealand, now living in I wouldn't in want to say that fast three yeah. times. And uh, he's doing well. He's in the central part of the country near Caesarea Philippi right now. And so he says in that area, it's relatively peaceful. Uh, the rockets from Gaza don't reach that far. Obviously, that's not a border town with Gaza. And there's only been limited activity so far, and we pray that it continues this way, coming from the north, from Lebanon, into the northern part of the country. So hopefully a second front uh, does not open up, and uh, so he is doing well. But it's uh, it's good to talk to someone on the ground in Israel to kind of get a sense of what they're feeling there. Let's talk a little bit about Zionism. Um, you know, if we're going to just summarize it, it's the belief that the Jewish people have a right to a homeland, and that homeland is the land of Israel, where the Jewish people came into being. That, that's pretty much a, a simple definition of Zionism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you are a Bible-believing Christian, 
uh, and you understand that this land was given to the, the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 says that Israel and to Abraham, you and your descendants will possess this land forever. That promise was passed on to Isaac. That promise was passed on to Jacob, who became Israel. And so the descendants of Jacob will possess the land forever. So it is their land. It is God gave it to them. And uh, as a, a being a Zionist, you believe that that promise that God made to Abraham still stands today. And, and sure enough, it does. It's an unconditional promise that God gave to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah, and the interesting thing about it is that if you go to the Internet and look at maps of that whole area, the Middle East and Israel, it is astounding how, if you see the map together, the Arab countries all around, going clear down to Africa, north, Turkey, that area, all around, Israel is this little tiny dot. And yet this is a disputed area. And I think it has much, we, we hear about it politically, well, it's they're encroaching on land in Palestine and all this and that and so forth. Here's the bottom line. There has been an enmity between the groups over there for over a thousand years, much even longer than that. And that that anger and that hatred. Uh, yeah, I'd say 3,000 years, kind of from Ishmael is, and Isaac. It goes right? way yeah, yeah. back. Yeah. That battle keeps going on and doesn't end. And I think the three of us know here it's simply this. The only solution to this whole problem is a changed heart. And that's only going to come through Jesus Christ. And so... Uh, I'm I'm thankful for the we have a gal over there who's just coming back now who is doing mission work. Bless her heart, out sharing the gospel right on the streets. And Zion can mean either Jerusalem or Israel. Is that correct? Yeah, I think technically it's. Um, I no, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I think technically it's Jerusalem. Uh, but you're right. I think there are places that it's described as the land or the promised land of Israel, too. But um, I think that's right. But the the key is, is that the the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob possessing this land forever. And don't forget, God's not done with Israel. This is a uh, kind of a key biblical understanding when it comes to Israel, that some in Christianity say that God's done with Israel. Israel has no future in God's plans, and the church believers, New Testament believers, have replaced Israel, and this is called replacement theology. Scripture uh, is clear that there is one day when God is going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, Jeremiah 31, also repeated again in, in Hebrews chapter 8. On that day when he will take away their sins, Romans 11 says it this way, all Israel will be saved. That promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 still stands today. And as a nation, when Jesus returns, one of the things he does will be to save Israel. He will put a new spirit in them, make a new covenant with them on that day that he takes away their sins. And Israel will enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ uh, on that day. So uh, God's not done with Israel. Mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead, Tom. And I don't think it's a separation of Israel from the church. Because the same language in Second Peter that's used about that he uses about Christians, we are a chosen race, a holy people. The same language used in the Old Testament, the the concept of being, as Paul talks, grafted in, is lost in our Western culture. We don't understand. And whether it is the Church or Israel, the bottom line is it is the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and those that submit to Him, whether a Jewish background, Arab background, whether they're Scandinavian or whatever, are part of the kingdom of God. 
Those who don't are eternally lost. And one of the concerns I had, and I had a, a debate with a, a wonderful Christian evangelist, but he will not evangelize Jews. And I said, well, why won't you evangelize Jews? He said, because God has a separate plan for them from Jesus. I said, where'd you get that from? He said, well, the, the, you know, Paul talks about that in Romans. I said, no, he doesn't. He says that he has a plan for them, but that plan is not going to be carried out with the, the shed blood of Jesus in his return. It all centers ultimately on our Savior. Yeah, you just described another theology, which I don't think is biblical, is this dual covenant theology that we don't need to evangelize Jews. I think Romans makes it very clear that all are under sin, Jew and Gentile. The gospel is offered to both Jew and Gentile, and salvation comes to both Jew and first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So yes, any person, uh, whether Jew or Gentile, from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, just as you said, Tom, needs to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Now, that does not negate the future promise for the remnant of the nation of Israel that will be saved when Christ returns, but that's yet future. Today, right now, is the day of salvation, whether you're Jew or Gentile. But you fit the key word, to be saved. How are they going to be saved? Not as a separate entity apart from Jesus Christ, but as part of his sheep, part of his fold, those who uh, he calls and will submit to him, just like he calls us. And I'm excited about that. One thing about Zion that may be helpful here and help me on my history, guys. Wasn't it always understood that where Isaac was, uh, Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him, was known as Mount Zion? And that's why the temple was built right there over the place where he was going to sacrifice Isaac. And now you've got the Dome of the Rock over that, which creates its own issues in terms of uh, rebuilding the temple. So I think Zion referred to the spot, but then all Israel became known as Zion as the dwelling place of God. Well, that's that's what I was commenting about earlier. That I think Zion, specifically in Scripture, is this is the city of God, uh, mm-hmm. the the mountain where God dwells, and that would yeah. be the Temple Mount, as you just said. Uh, but I think when we talk about being Zionist today, yes. it includes the land of Israel as well. Yep. Mm-hmm. Why all the hatred directed toward Israel? Boy, I think you you have to understand the conflict um, going all the way back to Ishmael and Isaac, right? Uh, Islam believes that the promises of God to Abraham were passed on to Ishmael. And the Jews and Christians believe that the promise of God was passed on to Isaac and then on to Jacob. Uh, So really, this uh, enmity, it goes back all the way to this family, you know, feud way back uh, under the children, the descendants of Abraham. Um, and, and, and I'll just say one other thing. I don't think you can truly understand this without understanding the spiritual nature of this. It is, it is almost as if you have those who believe in God, Yahweh, of the Bible, of the Old Testament, and, and the people that believe in Yahweh and his Messiah, uh, Yeshua, who came and died and rose again. So those people of God against those who deny this God. And, uh, you know, the enemy has been trying to destroy the line of the Jew since the very beginning. If you think of the stories in old, old, the Old Testament, Haman was going to destroy all of Israel. Herod tried to destroy the line of Christ through killing all the firstborn babies. We have Holocaust in, in, in our, our parents' lifetime uh, and even today. And if you have to recognize the spiritual nature of this conflict. Good word. So when the Romans thought they could kick out all the Jews in 70 AD and destroy the temple. They even changed the name to Palestine, didn't they? They did. Yeah. yeah. So when it 
That's another example, by the way, of the world trying to, and Satan, the enemy, yeah. trying to eliminate the Jews. By the way, one of the great miracles is that though Israel was scattered through the whole world, the diaspora or the yeah. diaspora, the great dispersion yep. to all the known Roman world, Israel kept its national identity for 2,000 years. That's unheard of it's in world history. It's unheard of, really. Yeah, it is. It's beyond anything I've ever seen historically. But of course, we've got a divine plan here. We do. So there's more going on than we understand from our human point of view. Yeah. So, so in, but I interrupted your no, question. No, I, no, no. In 1948, when Israel got their land back, wasn't there a, a debate over what they were going to call it, whether it was going to be Israel or Judah or. There's a call today by much of the world for a two state solution. And I think mm-hmm. the world has forgotten that we've already had a two-state solution. Uh, Very briefly, when Israel was kicked out of the land because of the rebellion by the Romans, they destroyed their temple, uh, they, uh, they killed many, many Jews, and over the next 50 years, they dispersed the Christians throughout the known world. And so, uh, trying to eliminate them. Part of what they did was rename Israel Palestine after their arch enemies, the Philistines. So they were not only try, trying to destroy the temple and wipe out their people, they, they renamed their country trying to wipe out their country. Palestine, for 2,000 years, was Israel. Mm-hmm. After the First World War, the Belfort degree, the British gained control of Palestine and said, hey, let's give Israel their homeland back. The world complained, so they split Palestine into two Israel, west of the Jordan River, mm-hmm. and Transjordan, east of the Jordan River. Right. There's your two-state solution. By the end of World War II, the Jews were now ready to come en masse to the, the their homeland, the Israel side of it. If you were Arab, you had Transjordan. If you were Jewish, you had Israel. Mm-hmm. That was the two-state solution. How did the pie get divvied up? Who got more land? Uh, it was... Transjordan was about three-fourths of the total area, and Israel was about uh, a quarter. But by the time they became a nation, that was even shrunk back even more. And so you have uh, kind of the original 49 lines that were even less than a quarter of that total land given Mm -hmm. to Israel. Well, all right, we'll take a break. We'll come back looking for your question, 877-933-2484. It's Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. We're looking forward to hearing from you. I know you got a question rambling around, something maybe you've been thinking about for a day, a week, a month, or 10 years. Let me know, 877-933-2484. I'm here with Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. Be right back. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. (music) 
So glad to have my friends for Guide Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what questions you have. Good questions coming in already. So thank you for that. All right, gentlemen, I'm looking uh, at this first question. Does the one flesh of Adam and Eve foreshadow one body in Romans 12? Of course, Romans 12 one says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The question is, does the one flesh of Adam and Eve foreshadow one body in Romans 12? I, I'll ask it a third time if you, yeah. <laughs> if, you need me to, if you need me to stall. You're yeah. doing a great job. Thank you. you. Are. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body, for it says the two will become one flesh? Now, when Paul is talking about that in Corinthians, I'm going to go to Corinthians for a second because I know that, that uh, and then Ephesians, he says this, for the, this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But then he says this, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So the, 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 the mystery that Paul uses and compares to the one flesh of a man and a woman coming together in marriage is Christ and the church. So I would answer yes. Yeah, and in foreshadowing, if you understand the word, uh, the way I think it's being used here, is this a preview of something that's going to come later on? And I think we can easily say yes, because there's there are all kind of previews. Now, do we have the full picture of that from Genesis? No, but we get the full picture in Jesus as he comes and establishes his church, and we are his body. And it's interesting because the one flesh concept is something we've kind of lost in Christianity with husbands and wives. We've got to go back and get a biblical understanding of that. That, you know, I always like the concept of the three chords that, you know, you when you're getting married, it's not just the two of you, but you're involving Jesus. We don't talk about that anymore. And when I talk about that, and I'm going to tell a story Sunday uh, at the beginning of my sermon, and I'll just give you just a brief overview. A gentleman came to me, he'd been married about a year, and he said, I'm having a miserable time in my marriage. I said, what's wrong? And he said, I love my wife. There's nothing wrong, but I don't feel united to her. I don't feel like we're really one flesh. And so we talked for a while, and by the Lord's grace, I finally said to him, so tell me why you got this problem. He paused, and he put his head down. He goes, well, I had five other women before I got to my wife, and I just have never really dealt with that. I said, oh, I think we're finding some of the problem. What it came down to is that he had been asking the Lord forgiveness for what he had done, never told his wife, which... At that point, I didn't see any reason he needed to, but he needed to deal with that. And when we prayed out of the blue, yeah, the Holy Spirit, he started naming these women, first name, one by one, and saying, Lord, I violated Mary. I didn't treat her right. Forgive me. And what happened was, after he did that, he said he felt the greatest relief. Years later, he literally said, that was the day the bondage was broken. Because he was already united with those five other women, as the Bible says, like you just read. But he wasn't united with his wife in the truest sense. Once that was broken, he said, suddenly we did become one flesh, and we've been living that way ever since. So I think the the foreshadowing really fits, because it fits for us today. In our relationships, and our marriages, the church is called the body of Christ. And for a very good reason, we're there to really love and take care of one another. But too often... You know, that isn't always the case. You know, that metaphor continues in Scripture where the church is talked um, about as a bride. 
Christ as the groom. We are to wait for him from heaven, right? So we have this bride and groom metaphor with us. And and this mystery, this idea that we can understand marriage and two people coming together as one, it's a mystery because Paul even says this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? And so how in how does the creator of all things dwell within us? That's why Paul calls it a mystery. But now this mystery, as he says in Ephesians, has been made known, and it is that we are joined together with the creator of the universe through faith in him. One last thing on marriage. You said, I think it's missing today. I think that's because marriage uh, in our country has become much more of a civil arrangement than it is a biblical covenant. Well yeah. said, Jeff Redorn. And thank you, Tom Parrish. All right, let's uh, jump into Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. They called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. As they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. An awful lot's going on in this. A lot's texts. going on. And I got questions, so let's just talk about this. For starters, these lepers approach Jesus from a distance, recognize who he is, and he says, Go show yourselves to the priests. How quickly can you get an appointment with the priests? <laughs> no, I'm just I want to talk through this because Jesus says, Go show yourselves to the priests, and they went, and as they went, they were cleansed. So they had to walk out in faith. They did. Yes. And then one of them comes back, but was there any instructions from Jesus after you check in with the priests, coming back for a little appreciation wouldn't kill you, would it? So we don't know that. And does Jesus have a shingle where he could be reached? I'm just talking through this. Jeff, you're you're laughing at me. No, I'm not. not Because it is, you know, to the other nine, like, ouch. You know, the Lord just kind of, you know you know, knocked you down a peg or two. It's like, you're the only one who came back and thanked me. It's like, you know, I think one of the first lessons we should recognize is if God does something in your life, uh, make sure you thank him. In fact, Amen. even if you don't recognize he's done something in your life, you thank him every day. Be joyful always, pray continuously, give thanks in all circumstances. So that's lesson one. The priests were the ones who would declare someone clean mm-hmm. from a disease like this. So that's why he instructed them to go to the priests. Uh, but you're right. When they left, they weren't clean yet, right. and they left in faith, trusting that, hey, I believe this guy has the power to do what he says. Yeah, I think the power here is rather interesting. And this is where I would bring the book of Hebrews, right, with this passage, because there were two things that needed to happen here. One, they needed to trust in Jesus to go do it for the healing. But then the Samaritan realized, wait a minute, I'm going back to the great high priest And that's what Hebrews talks about. Jesus is our great high priest who has given the sacrifice. And here you have a non-Jew, this Samaritan, recognizing who Jesus is and comes back and basically, you know, worships Jesus, if you want to get right down to it. That's what's going on here. The other nine, we never hear about them again, but we hear about this Samaritan. And I think for all of us, 
when we're hurting, when we have problems, when we ask the Lord for healing, help, you know, healing a relationship or whatever. And oftentimes the Lord does heal. We see healing. I've seen lots of it in members that I've worked with in my own life. But how often do we then go back to the great high priest and say, i got to do more than thanks. I've got to now serve you for what you've done, and I will serve you the rest of my life. I don't know what happened to the other nine, but I know this Samaritan's life was changed. Can we talk about another aspect, and that is that some want to take stories like this and make a a formula for getting healing from God, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Now, I don't think there is such a formula. If you look in Scripture, sometimes a person touched Jesus and they were healed. Sometimes Jesus touched them and they were healed. Sometimes Jesus went with them to heal the person. Sometimes he didn't go with them to heal the person. Sometimes he took mud and put it on their eyes. Sometimes, you see what I'm saying? Yes. There is no pattern in Scripture. I think this this one foreigner, it says, right, probably a Samaritan, was so significant. Remember the centurion that yes. came to Jesus? And he had a servant that was sick. Yes. And he said, he asked Jesus if he would heal his servant. And he said, sure, I'll come with you. And the centurion said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a man under authority and have authority over others. I know and believe that you have authority over this sickness. Yeah. If you just say the word, he'll be healed. And he says, he's healed. By the time the centurion gets back, the servant is healed. But Jesus says this. I love this. He said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in all of Israel. Yeah. Right? This man understood the authority that Jesus had over sickness. You know what? This guy that came back understood it too, and he came back to thank the one who healed him. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things we're beginning to really struggle with in the church I'm serving. The leadership is coming to this very conclusion. You know, we talk about Jesus being Lord. We talk about him being master. But how do we live that out in the practicality of how the church is run, how our mission is set, how we spend our money? Do we really consult Jesus? Do we really look to him? Or do we come together for a meeting and the majority rules? Well, majority doesn't mean it's the will of Jesus. What is, is that when we come together with one heart and one mind, after we have sought out the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's interesting because I've had some long-term members there say, this is a whole new paradigm in thinking that we really are not just saying, Jesus, help us. We're really looking to Jesus to give us the answer. And that centurion saw the answer in Jesus, and that's where we need to look today. All right, nicely done. You guys are doing a great job today. It's almost as if you have all this energy because you ate pizza. Ate, ate that pizza. That pizza I, did. I think you're right. You ate that I think pe- that's right. Pizza. Yeah. So that means next week? Um, I don't know about next week. I wouldn't push your luck. All right. Uh, Is it okay to buy tickets for the 1.7 billion Powerball or any other lottery? Is that not being a good steward of God's money? I better take my ticket out of my wallet. (laughs) Um, You know, some in the church will say gambling and card playing and dancing. And look, it's a heart thing, right? I mean, in the end... Um, greed, I think, is what is is a heart thing, right? Yeah. It's a greed thing. Um, you know, I've always thought if I won a lottery like that, a big payoff like that, wouldn't it be fun to bless so many oh. people in ministries? Mm-hmm. It would just be, in fact, you probably your phone would probably ring off the hook yeah. for years. I've got a list for you, too. We can work yeah. this out together. <laughs> yeah. It would be, but here's, I have a friend who's a lawyer. And he told me 
that he's worked with lottery winners. He said, let me tell you, it's the worst thing could ever happen to you. He said, 99% of all lottery winners have no plan. They have no purpose except to win the money. And then suddenly they've got it and they discover they have relatives they never had before in their life. <laughs> Everybody's knocking on their door. And within two to three years, they're broke. See, I have a plan and a purpose. There you go, Jeff. <laughs> I'm with Jeff. So I think it's a good idea. Uh, I right. would say in terms of the lottery, the lottery is not going to get you out of financial need. It's not going to solve your financial problems because it's not simply a money problem. It's how you're using that money and how you're putting that money to work. And who is the real owner of that money? It all belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. And are, how are we going to give it back? So I think it goes down to this. I don't object. If somebody wants to buy a lottery ticket, go buy a lottery ticket. But don't go buy a 1,000 of them. Don't and, spend half your paycheck on the lottery ticket and do okay. that kind of stuff. Take care of your responsibilities, and that may be the last thing you do. And if you win it, then you can consult with Jeff on what to do with yeah, it. I, you know, I buy a lottery ticket when it gets really big every once in a while, a couple of them. I don't play it every single time. Mm-hmm. If you're playing it every single time in order to get rich, well, then your heart's probably in the in the wrong place, yeah. right? So, and I would rather have you take that money and invest it, sure. and you're going to be better off 30 years from now than playing the lottery all these years. Mm-hmm. Okay, I got a verse. Keep talking because it'll take me just a second Did to you, find it. You, you know the story about the Christian guy. Mm-hmm. Every day, every time, you know, Wednesday and when they do the lottery and the other day, he kept praying, Lord, help me win the lottery. Lord, help me win the lottery. He did this for months, and finally, one day when he prayed that, he heard a voice that said, buy a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) So I I think we expect the Lord to come through in these things and don't understand our responsibility is in life. And it's not to win the lottery. It is to use what he's given us properly for the kingdom of God. Absolutely. And you also remember that the Lord will provide. I mean, look, he feeds the birds of the air and he clothes the flowers of the field. Does he not love you more than these? Yes, he does. He will provide for you. All right. Proverbs 13, 11 says, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Well, I'd take the 30-year payout then. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a little by little. Little by little, yes. All right. impressed, Jeff. Uh, Yeah, I like that. Let me know what questions you have for Guy Talk, 877-933-2484. I'll be right back with Jeff and Tom and your question. We're back in our home studio for Guy Talk. Last week we were in Madison, Wisconsin with our fabulous friends and had a wonderful time at Door Creek Church. So thanks again for everyone who came out. We want to do that again. So if your church would like to have Guy Talk show up at your doorstep, let us know. We'd love to uh, love to do it. You can contact me, Bill, at myfaithradio.com. All right, gentlemen, uh, after the flood, the people who carried the Nephilim DNA died. How then were there still giants after the flood like Goliath? Wasn't, well, he, wasn't the, he like Andre the Giant? Didn't he have that, that one condition? He was a big guy. Yeah, yeah big what guy. was that condition? He had something it medically was, wrong with him. Yeah, it was some... It's a gland that goes haywire. Yeah. There's this technical term, but I can't remember it. So what the 
What the question is referring to is that in Numbers chapter 13, um, in Genesis chapter 6, we have, first of all, let's start at the beginning, we have these people called Nephilim, and they appear at, in a, with a direct reading of Scripture that the Nephilim were a half-breed of the sons of God who are fallen angels and the daughter of men who are human women. And somehow, some way, it seems that there was these half-breed, these giants called Nephilim, and when the flood came, all of the Nephilim would have been wiped out so that only Noah and his children, so as the questioner says, no Nephilim DNA would have survived. If 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 that's the proper understanding and interpretation of this, and I, I lean that way, by the way. But then in Numbers 13, it says this, we saw the Nephilim there, and we seemed like grasshopper in our own eyes, and uh, so they were. there were these giants like Goliath. This is the same people group that they're talking about here, where Goliath came from. I think the word Nephilim in Numbers is just simply a reference to, to giant people, like we'd say, that guy's a giant, Andre the Giant, right? He's not really a mythical giant, but he's just tall, huge. he's big, he's huge. And I think the Numbers 13 is not saying that these guys are somehow related to the people that were destroyed at the flood. They're just calling them giants, Nephilim. Yeah. That's what that word means, by the way, Acro- Acromegaly is the condition. It's a excessive secretion of a growth hormone that's always due to a pituitary issue. Mm-hmm. Well, there's still people around the world today. If you go around the world, there's there are people out there that are over eight feet tall. You know, Goliath was nine feet tall. I don't think that that was that unusual. What we don't know about the Nephilim as giants is how big these people really were. We have no indication. We have no, no measurements being given. So before the flood, before how the flood, big was big. But, but next to yeah. Goliath, Goliath may have been a pipsqueak, you know, compared to them. We don't know. What we do know is that the Lord wiped them out and that DNA structure, but we still have huge people, and there are there are clans of people. You go to Africa; there are some people there, tribes that are incredibly tall. It's just part of their, who they are, but and they're I, not Nephilim. And there's a lot of uh, internet theories out there that certain people today still have Nephilim DNA in them, and I just don't think that. Uh, a, as you read scripture and see what happens at the flood, and one of the great purposes of the flood, um, I just don't think that's possible. I think everybody alive today is 100% human DNA. Well, and if the Bible says that they were wiped out, then they were wiped out. and doesn't say, except, so I pretty much understand that part of it's gone. But in terms of us as human beings, uh, there are going to be some people real big and some people not. However, the reality is, I don't care what our DNA is, we're all born with sin, and we need to come to Jesus. All right. First John 5, verse 19 says, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. And the question is, do we underestimate Satan's role in our day-to-day lives? Oh, we sure do. I mean, I, I preached last Sunday on spiritual blindness. You know, and you can be a Christian and still be spiritually blind, that is, we can know the truth, but knowing the truth and doing the truth are two different things. And I think in Christianity, we have helped people understand the proposition of being saved, which I agree with, but we haven't gone and really pushed the understanding of being a disciple, which we're called to do. Now, here, we're looking at First at John. Uh, yeah, the evil is everywhere. There's a lot of darkness, and there's a lot of power out there, and most people don't know how to understand it grapple with it, or deal with it. 
the church doesn't always know what to do with it either. Uh, so we need to be much more attentive to the spiritual realm and recognize that evil exists and that evil has its own personality and that we have to be wise on what's going on. I think this is one of these kind of forgotten biblical understandings that Satan is really the one who is the prince of this world, the God of this age, Scripture describes him at. Remember when Jesus was tempted, it was Satan that said, uh, if you bow down to me, I will give you all the kingdoms of this world. So he has a, a certain authority, uh, obviously allowed by God. Nothing can happen that God right. doesn't know or understand or allow in some way, shape, or form. But he has uh, a, a certain level of authority right here and now in this world. And so when John says the whole world is in control of the evil one, uh, that is kind of the condition of the earth. Some people want to say that God is in control of everything that happens on the earth. And I, I just don't see that in Scripture. It doesn't mean that God is not sovereign. Yes. I think that yes. some misunderstand sovereignty to mean that God is controlling everything that happens in this world. Well, over the last five days, you cannot tell me hmm. that my God is orchestrating or controlling the events that we've seen that happen in Israel. God does not do evil. That's the world. That's the enemy. That's the, the that's Satan who looks to kill and to steal and destroy. Now, his sovereignty has to do with his will being done in the end. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven one day. I don't think he's controlling every single event out there. I teach that on a regular basis, and I, I've told the congregation, look, we got to be real careful, especially with nominal Christians or people on the edge of talking about God being in control because they immediately say, well, then why did he let all those babies get beheaded over there? Why did he allow the Holocaust to happen? Well, that's not what we're talking about here. It's it's not that control. It's like your sovereignty, yes. And I tell people, in the end, no matter what happens, there's great evil and evil abounds. But in the end, Jesus will have the final word over everything, including those who did that, as well as those babies, as well as us. So we need to look at eternity and not just look at the moment. Yeah, that's how, that's how I understand sovereignty right there. All right. If you are brand new to listening to Faith Radio and you would like to request a free welcome pack, you can do that. Just text the word WELCOME to 877-933-2484. And if you have a question for Guy Talk or anything that you've read in Scripture or heard in a sermon or a Bible study and you want us to discuss it, we'd love to hear your question. 877-933-2484. That's text only, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with my power panel, Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish. It is the Guy Talk panel, or Guys Who Talk. Your questions mean everything to us, so let me know what you have. 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, a friend of mine said that after Jesus returns and the people are with God... 
we still will have free will and we won't all choose God and the cycle will begin again. I've never heard this argument and I didn't know what to say. Help? Well, the first question I would have for your friend is, show me in the Bible where it teaches that. Because that sounds more like hearsay than it really does good biblical teaching. Uh, What the Lord is going to do in eternity is up to the Lord. But he says, and he promises us, there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. Death will be no more. And so basically it's returned to paradise like Adam and Eve, but without sin being able to creep in. And I'm all for that part of it. Me too. I think I'm going to try to read into that question because I think I know the basis for that question. Tom, you're just describing the eternal state, the new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem, and totally agree that no sin there. Um, But I think the question, it didn't state this, but during the millennial reign, when Christ comes, he takes Satan, he binds Satan up for that thousand years, but it says at the end of that thousand years, Satan is released for a brief period, Revelation 20, verse 3. And during that period, he attracts many, many people uh, to surround the camp of the city of God, Jerusalem, and then fire comes down from heaven and destroys them all. So the question, inherent in the question is, is there another rebellion during the the kingdom on earth, the millennial kingdom? And the answer is yes, at the end, there is one last rebellion. And so, yes, people do have free will. And just think about this. Although only believers will enter the millennial reign, they will have children their children will have children, and so on. And there'll be people during that thousand years who will live under Christ as king, but will not submit to him as Lord and Savior. And those are the people who are going to rebel at the end of the thousand years. I think you brought up a good point, because in eternity, there will be none of this. Correct. But before eternity, however the Lord works that out with the thousand-year reign, yeah, there, there's always that potential because we have that freedom. But once we're with the Lord forever, no, that's gone. Remember, without free will, there's no free love. There's True. no real love, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, it takes free will to truly love someone. All right, here's another question. Are there apostles and prophets today? The, the, I'm, the only definition I have been able to find, Jeff and, and you know, they'll jump in here, um, is that an apostle is someone who had seen the risen Lord and was given a direct commission. Now, there are people today that claim they've seen the risen Lord and been given a commission. Whether they're apostles or not, I don't know. But if they are apostles, then they have a special calling, and we're going to see some special things come out of them, like the early apostles. We don't see much of that today. Prophecy, um, I do believe in a level of prophecy, uh, today, I believe the Lord can speak. I believe he still does, and he speaks through people. But I think we have to always be wise and careful with that and make sure it aligns with the Word of God, and then we're not creating our own prophecy statement, thinking it's from the Lord. And I've run into that a lot as I've dealt with the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal movement. Dear friends, I love them all, uh, but you've got to be careful about what you hear in your head to make sure it aligns with what you read in Scripture. I think that's generally accepted by most Christians that apostles is specifically those um, who were with Christ in his day, uh, despite uh, in Ephesians uh, 
4.11, it says that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers, and so on. And so there seems to be this particular role, but um, I, I, I tend to fall on that same definition that you just described. All right. Here's a question. I'm looking your direction, Jeff. I am studying more of Revelation. My question is, where will the believers in Christ be in the Great Tribulation? Well, there's actually several uh, groups of believers, or a couple groups of believers, during the seven-year tribulation. So, um, as we are talking about in our Thessalonians series on Tuesday afternoons, by the way, Mm -hmm. we've talked a lot about the rapture of the church. And I think God's plan for the end of the age includes what's called a pre-tribulation rapture, that the church is caught up to heaven prior to the seven-year period. Um, Regardless, we know that there will be people who are saved during the seven-year tribulation. And those people, we see them actually in Revelation chapter 7, where John sees a great multitude in heaven that came out of the great tribulation. So we know that many, many, many people, a great multitude, are going to be saved during the tribulation period and then die and go to heaven. We also know that there's a whole bunch of people who will believe and be saved and make it to the end of the tribulation because at the sheep and the goat judgment, one of the first things that Jesus does when he returns to earth is he separates out the sheep, the righteous, from the goats. The goats go away, don't enter the kingdom, and the sheep enter in. So we have several groups of believers. We have the believers who are believers before the rapture, probably up in heaven, I think. We have those who came to Christ during the tribulation and died and went up to heaven. And then we have those believers that accepted Christ during the tribulation and made it all the way to the end. So there's your groups of Christians, believers. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. Are there any books or guides you can recommend for learning how to study the Bible more deeply? Oh, there are lots of good uh, materials out there. I'm just trying to think offhand. Um, one of the better ones I've ever run into was by a woman I met years ago named Kay Arthur. And most of us know her name. Um, I was at a conference, and I was quite a bit younger. Hopefully I was more handsome. You but anyway, You weren't. I was. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> anyway, she took a liking to me, and for the next four days, uh, she— Took me everywhere she went and introduced me to people. So really? we ate dinner together. Yeah, we had a good time together. She's a nice lady. But what I like about her and her uh, how to study the Bible material is she lays it out pretty systematically, and it's not it's not complicated in the sense of you know how much Hebrew do you know, how much Greek do you know. Is what are the systematic steps you take to let the word speak on its own? And she's got one of the better ones out there. There are quite a few others out there, but I really like what she was able to do. So we've never talked about this before. One of the first serious Bible studies I ever took was a precept upon precept study of yeah. the book of Revelation and Daniel. It was a three-year study. And one of the things that we read was how to study your Bible by K. Arthur, who was the head of precept ministries. Yeah. And it was that first serious study of mine where I learned some of the principles that I still use today. And one of the big ones is context is everything. Context is king. We have to understand it rules. We have to understand the context of a passage. And two, we always let scripture interpret scripture. Set aside the commentaries, set aside the books. You have the same word of God and the same Holy Spirit as every great theologian over the last 2,000 years. Use them. Use Submit to God. He will teach you. 
He will lead you into truth. And if you're willing to study his word as you're led by his spirit, he will teach you. Yep. Do you ever think of the principle of observe, put it in context, and then apply it? Yeah. Observe scripture. Just read it and observe it. And then figure out how it fits into the story, who it was intended for, the audience, who said it, and look up every term you can that you might feel is in question. We call that in the church the three W's. What, so what, and now what? Because (laughs) what does it actually say? Who is it actually talking to? What is the historical setting they're in? And you can spend a lot of time there. So what, then, is getting the meaning out of it? What is it actually saying to those people or that situation? And then the third one is, now what? What is it saying to me in my situation today, whether it's dealing with forgiveness, whether it's dealing living with for the Lord, whether it's helping others? Um, if you do those three or just what you said, Bill, mm-hmm. if you put that to work and do that consistently, you will be a wonderful Bible scholar and you will be used by the Holy Spirit to touch people's lives. In the precept approach in this book, Kay would say observation, interpretation, application. Yep. What does the text say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? So it's the saying the same things. And one of the tools, one of the tools, actually precept has many tools to get you to just observe the text. One of them, for all the precept studiers out there, you know where I'm going with this. You'll have a set of colored pencils, and you'll mark up your Bible with all these colored pencils, depending on the words or themes or so on. Like in my Bible, I have a little red heart uh, over every word that means love, believe, trust, so on. Mm-hmm. And it's I got a little red heart over it because I've used the precept method over the years to observe the text. And it's just designed to slow you down and potentially pick up themes or repeated keywords in a passage. I really like that. And those of you that live and die by your iPad like I do, uh, this new Blue Line Bible is pretty phenomenal in that you have, it's free, it's a free app, but you have different translations, you can determine which ones you want, and then they have a notebook in it, and it comes up on the other side of the page where you can use your pen or whatever and write on there your notes, and then it's attached to that Bible verse from that point on. And I wish I would have had that years ago. I know, my margins are all full in my Bible most of the places, and I, I need more space. All right, you're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, and they're in a particularly good mood today because they finally got pizza. Thanks to Jeannie. So we're going to take a little break and come back with Hour 2. Keep your questions coming, 877-933-2484. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com. 